All right, well, we're in this series called Invisible. Uh, The hope of the church, the hope as followers of Jesus, is that we can make that which seems invisible, the kingdom of God, the ways of God, the love of God, which seems like it's so distant, our hope is that we could make it tangible for people. Um, That it would not just be an idea, but it would become a reality for people. Um, that, That we believe God's called us to do that as the church. And so we're trying to figure out what that looks like. Well, the, the big words are evangelism, discipleship, evangelism, just being an advocate uh, for something. That's literally what that means. So if you haven't seen Toy Story 4, let me be an evangelism for Toy Story 4, right? It is a great movie. Toy, Toy Story uh, 4, uh, it's sad once again. I don't know why they decide to continue to do that to us. Uh, but, but Toy Story 4 is an incredible movie. You should see it. I'm being an evangelist for Toy Story 4. If you haven't eaten at Highway 67 Barbecue, let me tell you, it is incredible. If you've never had turkey ribs, uh, the bone just sliding there and heard of turkey ribs. I knew turkeys had ribs, but I never had eaten turkey ribs. But I'm being an advocate, and so I'm being an evangelist for those things. And so the idea as for, the, for the church is that we are passionate about what God is doing. Like something has happened in your heart and in your life. You've experienced God's grace and his love. And so the response is that we want other people to experience that as well. And so we don't always know how to do that. Or we haven't done it very well. Uh, we've done it in some ways that I often think maybe hurt more than, than help. And then the discipleship piece. How do we help people begin to follow? How do we follow Jesus better? And how do we help other people follow Jesus when they're interested in doing that? Well, we've been looking at this for a while. We've been working through some things. And today we're going to look at this idea of this confrontation that happens. Uh, when we think of confrontation, we often think of argumenting, uh, of an argumentative um, dialogue of a fight when you think of confronting someone. Uh, but, but maybe it's not quite that. Uh, maybe the confrontation really happens between someone and God. Maybe the confrontation is not always with someone else, but maybe it's something that God is doing in the life of someone else. It's something that we deal with when we come to the reality that maybe our life isn't what we hoped for. Maybe it's the confrontation when we begin to think about maybe there's more. Uh, Maybe life isn't just about us. And honestly, the confrontation can come from the reality of people's circumstances or situations. Uh, My sister and my nephew, Reed, are in town uh, this week. My nephew, Reed, is only a month older than my son. They're both nine. And so we have Six Flags uh, passes. And so we took them to Six Flags yesterday and we went to the water park and my nephew Reed hadn't been on a lot of water slides like that, and so um, my kids and I decide, well, let's just do it. We're going to take him right to the, the best and the biggest of the water slides at Six Flags, and he does the first one. I don't know the official name. I, we call it the tornado. I don't know if that's what it is, but it's a big blue and yellow slide, and you drop down, and, and it's a little terrifying, and my, my nephew Reed, I could just see on his face, he was in the midst of it thinking, what did I just get myself into? But as soon as we got off, we, we were on to the next one. And it's the new one at at Six Flags. And so uh, as we're walking up, I could tell that Reed was getting just a little nervous. And we get all the way to the top. And he then, from the top, begins to see what the slide looks like. And we had already stood in line, and we had already got there, and we were next. And then Reed kind of looks out over the slide, and he looks at me. He's like, I'm not sure I want to do this. (laughs) And the reality for Reed had set in, right? Like from the ground, it kind of looks okay, and he had just experienced the slide. But then 
When you stand over and you look at the slide, there's this confrontation that began to happen inside of Reed. And his response was, I'm not sure about this. And so, you know, I do the good uncle thing, and I'm like, no, you'll be fine. And I just put him in the, the tube, and we, we go, and we, we go down, and we get to the bottom. He's like, oh, that wasn't so bad, right? I didn't have to push Reed to get to that place of confrontation. I didn't have to tell Reed how difficult it may be to get into the tube. I didn't have to tell Reed that it was going to be a little scary, right? That happened on his own. There was something internally that was happening, and he had to confront that himself. He had to be brave and get over the fear and decide to go down the slide, even though it seemed like there wasn't an option to get off the, the slide. But here's what happens, I think. We've been looking at this. We've been looking at this term incarnation, right? Well, we'll see this little chart that'll come up, this incarnation, this idea that, that God has come, uh, that, that God, what seemed like to be at a distance, has intervened on our behalf, uh, that he has moved into our neighborhood. He becomes a neighbor in a community. It is God in the flesh. And we understand that he does that because all people matter. That's why God comes. He sends Jesus because all people matter, and he wants them to experience God's love and grace and a purpose to their life. And so we understand that if that is how God sees people, then that's how we see people, that all people matter. And then we said if we really believe that, then we begin to look at the reputation of God. What is the reputation of God for people? What, what do people think about when they think about God? And more specifically, what do people think about when they think about the church or followers of Jesus? How can we begin to possibly change the reputation of the church and followers of Jesus? How can we look more like him? Does our lives help the reputation or hurt the reputation of Jesus, and we looked at that, and then that we believe, once there's this reputation, we think that that will open the door for conversation, that people begin to wonder why you live like you live. Why do you treat people like you treat them? Why do you care for people that you don't even know? Why do you speak words of encouragement? Why do you bring meals to people who have just had a baby? Why do you visit people in the hospital that maybe you really don't even know? Why do you care about people who live halfway around the world that you may never even me? Why do you live life like you do? If people begin to see that reputation, then they begin to ask questions. We looked at this. There's even this thought that, that people will ask you, why, why do you have hope? Can you explain to me why you have hope? There, there's this thought in, in the scriptures that, that people will begin to ask us, why do you have hope? And we looked at this being in this ongoing conversation, that this happens more in relationships than it does standing on a corner speaking out about God, that this happens in, in ongoing relationships more than it does outside of relationships. And our role is not as a judge. We had the, the rocking chairs up here, and we said, what if it was more like two people sitting on a porch having a conversation? That maybe people will understand and come to know more about God through that than acting as a judge. And then I said, let's talk about it. Let's talk about the king. Let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk about who he is and what he's done. Let's talk about the kingdom that he brings. And I said, let's talk about you. As a follower of Jesus, you begin to talk about you and what God is doing in your life. Not as if you have it all together, but that you have a story. And that there's opportunities for you to share it. Why do you have hope? How have you gotten through some of the hardest days of your life? What does it look like to struggle for most of your life and make decisions that led to destruction and then an 
all of a sudden you interact with God and he does something in your life and then you begin to heal from those things. Why? How, how does that happen? You have a story and there's opportunities for you to share that. And the thought is that if we're able to do this, the, the conversation comes with the people we're close to, friends, family, neighbors, then maybe they'll have a moment of confrontation. Not that we're making this confrontational, please hear me. But something happens for people where we're confronted with truth, we're confronted with future, we're confronted with our past. And that is our role, to begin to usher in opportunities for people to realize this and to understand this. Uh, Pastor Jonathan Brooks, uh, he's a pastor up in Chicago. He has a book called Church Forsaken. He says this, He says, the mission of the church is not to convince people that they're sinners. It is to show them that life is incomplete without the unconditional love of Jesus. So that's what we want people to be confronted with. That maybe there's a God who has created them and loves them and cares deeply for them. That that God has not abandoned them, that he's not mad at them, that he's not disappointed in them. Maybe that's the opportunity that we have. And when we begin to do that, then maybe they'll be confronted with the truth. It's the fact that God does love them, that he sends Jesus, this is the incarnational piece, to put on display his love for all people. That is the reputation of God. And that through conversation, people will be confronted in such a way that maybe they just may respond to the grace of God. So our hope is that this confrontation would spill out of relationship and conversation. That we would share this in our own lives and something would happen in the lives of those around us. That we want to be heavy on grace. Please hear me. Look, if I stand before God one day and he tells me, man, you were really um, uh, heavy on telling people about grace, that you, that you seem to talk freely about grace, that's going to be okay with me. What I don't want to happen is if I stand before God and it seems as if I was stingy with it, that I held tightly to grace, that I was the one who decided who received God's grace and who didn't. So we want to be heavy with grace. We, We want to spill grace out in our relationships and in our lives and in our community and conversations. It should be obvious the grace of God has done something in our lives and other people experience that. And we, we, we talked about this, that it's not just grace, but it's truth as well. It's grace and truth. But, but I want to speak out of grace first, and I believe truth will come. And this is what I believe to be true about most of you, um, mainly because you're here. Maybe someone has drugged you here, but you are here uh, today, uh, is that you have been searching or wondering about your own life. You wonder about purpose. You wonder about meaning. You're wondering about your marriage and the state of it. You're you're trying to figure out what it looks like to raise kids or to raise teenagers or to raise young adults. You're wondering and thinking about eternity. You've done things and you've experienced guilt and maybe you've carried shame for a long time and you've wondered, what do I do with my past? Well, those feelings are... I believe, are this confrontation that happens within us. That those aren't bad things. That those are opportunities for God to speak to us. 
And so you've been confronted with things. Even as a follower of Jesus, there, there are still moments in your life, I hope, where God is confronting you about your own choices, your own lives, relationships, the way you treat people. Like, and sometimes it's really, really obvious. Sometimes you you feel like God is standing right in front of you and speaking to you. Like you don't have an option. The the confrontation is is obvious. It wasn't too long ago I was down in the city at a meeting, and I was coming by Fairgrounds Park uh, there in in North City. And uh, as I'm driving, I had just pulled up, and I could tell there was an accident that had just taken place. And so it, it was not one of those, huh, I wonder if I should stop and see if everyone is okay. Uh, you could just sense it and feel it in the moment uh, that, that something was going on. And so I, I turned into the parking lot where I realized one, had caught, one car had gone up on the curb and hit a light pole, and no one was in the driver's seat. And so I turned into the parking lot, and I run over to the car, and there's two or three of us who are at the car, and there's a baby in the back seat in a... Uh, car seat, a young adult male in the back seat, and then a young woman in the driver's seat. Uh, the man in the back seat is not responding, he's not conscious. Uh, the, the woman in the front seat is hysterical, and we get the baby out, and it's a convertible. And so two of us grab the top of the convertible, and we rip the top off of this convertible, and we pull the guy out of the back seat, and we pull the lady out of the front seat. And then I realized that there had been an SUV that had been hit, and it had rolled probably 20 to 25 yards up against this building. And it was, once again, it wasn't one of those, like, should I help? Should I go over and see? Right? The the confrontation in the moment was extremely obvious. So I run over to the SUV, and I grab a police officer, and we get over to the car, and we can't get into this man. And and at at that point, we realized that he had um, uh, been killed in this, this accident. But there was chaos just all around. But it was in that moment that it wasn't like, what, what should I do? Should I pay attention to what's going on? And sometimes that's how God works. Right? Sometimes God works in a way that is extremely obvious. Like you know what God is saying to you. But if you're unfamiliar with that, if you're unfamiliar with hearing from God, it's usually more of a whisper. It's usually more of God leading you down a different path or direction. It's him whispering, don't do something, or do do something. And so for some of us who are followers of Jesus, this even may be a new idea. That, that I am not the one who should be convicting or confronting you. That is the role of God. Uh, we, we don't play that role in people's lives. That, that we believe that is the role of the Holy Spirit that begins to speak to people and change hearts. Uh, Listen to the words of Jesus. If you don't own a Bible, there should be a Bible somewhere around you. It's a red Bible. That's our gift to you. Uh, Please take that. John 16, it's found. uh, The page number will be up there. John 16, 5 through 11. Listen to the words of Jesus. He says, Now I'm going to him who sent me, yet none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth. It is for your good that I am going away. Just real quick, Jesus with his disciples, he's been showing them how to do life. Uh, he's been performing miracles, and, and the disciples want to be with him, with, with Jesus. And Jesus comes to this point where he says, look, I have to leave. Uh, I, I'm eventually, I'm going to go to a cross, and I'm going to die on a cross for you. I'm going to go into a grave, and then even after that, I'm going to depart from you. Can you imagine the emotion of these disciples? 
All they've known for the last three years is Jesus. Jesus has told them what to do. Jesus has told them where to go. Jesus is showing them how to live life. And now all of a sudden, Jesus says, I'm out. I'm I'm leaving. But he says, it's for your good that I'm going away. He says this, unless I go away, the counselor, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world now stands condemned. Jesus says, it's for your good that I'm going away. Because the counselor, the guide, the one who works in your heart and your life will come. And he comes convicting people. He comes speaking to the hearts of people. He will shine a light on what is right and true. He will call to account the actions of people. He will correct people. This should be happening in our own hearts and lives. As followers of Jesus, this should be ongoing. What is God saying to you? What what is God trying to get you to see that could look different in your life? Not just stopping, but but maybe starting. What, What is the whisper that you hear from the voice of God? He is the guide to our faith, and he is leading us to be more like Jesus. Can you still hear it? Can you still feel it? Has it been a while since you experienced it? We see here Jesus says the Holy Spirit will do that in your life. And if we believe that he'll do that in our life, we can believe that he'll do that in the lives of others. That it is God who will speak to people and change people. Now he'll use us. He'll use us. He'll use our lives. We've looked at this. He'll use us in the reputation of the church. He'll use us in conversations. But we can trust that in the end, it is the Holy Spirit that will work in the hearts of people. And he makes it clear in verse 9 as he talks about sin. It says, because men do not believe in me. So we often err on the side of behavior, not belief. We often focus on behavior, not simply belief. It seems like God cares more about belief than just us doing the right thing. I think our behavior will really be the result of what we believe. That our belief should always come from what we say we believe. And there's this fruit, like this real fruit. We can pretend, right? We know the words to say. We know what to do. But this real fruit to our life comes from what we believe. And we're still believing, right? We're still believing, right? We, We have not got it all figured out. I'm still learning things about God. I'm still learning things about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and I am a pastor, right? And so if I am still believing and I am still learning and God is still doing in things in my life, we should see that that can happen in the lives of the people around us. That as we're growing in our belief, the hope is that others will as well. So we can give space to other people to do that. We can give space for the Holy Spirit to speak to people. That's called discipleship. That is what it looks like. I don't know if you know this, but as Jesus was leading this group of men that he invited to follow him, there were often times where they just didn't get it. Right? There were, 
They were questioning what Jesus was doing. They were questioning what they were supposed to do. And they were walking with Jesus for three years. And even in the end, they still didn't have it figured out. Jesus was patient. He continued to show them and guide them. And I think Jesus still does that with us now. And so I think maybe we could show more grace to those who just happen to be a little farther behind us in what it means to follow Jesus and on the road of discipleship. That we don't have to push and be confrontational with people. That we don't have to see evangelism as a fight or an argument that we need to win. Uh, Hugh Halter, who I've learned a lot from over the last couple years and a lot of this comes from, uh, he says this. He says, the less judgmental we are, the more others will feel a healthy dose of conviction. The more we judge, the less they will feel conviction. Being convicted or confronted with sin can feel like a sharp finger in the chest. But what if we model our lives after Jesus? Conviction will feel like a bright light squeezing its way in a dark room. Uh, Have you ever been down in Lake of the Ozarks, Branson, in those areas where there's the caves? I don't know if you've ever done one of the cave tours, but we did that with our family, and you, you go down into the cave, and then every time I've ever been on this, they decide to turn the lights off. I don't know if you've ever experienced it. That is dark beyond dark, right? And, and I've done that with my kids, and it's like you, you grab them because there is this fear, right? One, will they turn the lights back on? Uh, will my kids stay near to me? If I, the lights come back on, are my kids going to be gone, right? There's this fear, and then almost always they'll light a little candle. Have you ever experienced this? They light a candle, and it is amazing. Just the smallest light lights up this cave. What if we begin to see our lives that way? That in the midst of hopelessness and despair in the people around us, that we don't have to convict others, we don't have to confront others, we can shine a light with our story and with the hope that we've experienced. See, Jesus wasn't really running around trying to confront people. People were doing that on their own. Here's what I think is uh, true about a lot of you. Uh, especially if you would say you're a follower of Jesus. You, you want something for people. You really do. God's done something in your life, and you want other people to experience that. You, you maybe see the mess that they have found themselves in, maybe on their own, but maybe not. You, you see where they're headed, and you want to try and help. You want to help them avoid it. You, you maybe see an addiction or poor choices. You You're aware of marriage struggles. You you can see that they're lost and searching. They're trying to figure out purpose in life. And I believe your heart is good. That you have a story of grace and redemption and rescue and you want that for them. Then tell your story. Tell about your experience. Tell about what God has done in your own life. And then trust the Holy Spirit. Trust that God will begin to do something in their life life, that the Spirit will force conviction, that the Spirit will have the the confrontational moment within them, not a fight or an argument, but just where God begins to whisper into their heart and their mind and their soul. And then the hope is that you'll be there with them, that you're in relationship with them. So when it happens, they begin to wonder and they begin to question. Look, we see this happen time and time. I I think we, we forget that we can read in the scriptures the way Jesus did this. Sometimes I feel like we have to come up with this on our own. 
uh, but we just see the way that, that Jesus interacted with people. I want to look at just quickly a couple of interactions that Jesus has with people. Uh, these, for many of you, will be um, reminders. You've heard these stories. Maybe they're new for some of you. But there's a guy named Zacchaeus. Uh, Zacchaeus is a tax collector. He is hated. Uh, you have sinners and you have tax collectors. I've talked about this. Uh, the, the tax collectors were stealing, really, from their own people. And Zacchaeus climbs a tree because here Jesus is coming through town. Jesus sees Zacchaeus in a tree and simply says, hey, come down. C- come down. I, I want to go to your house. I, I want to come have a meal for you. And then people begin to question, does, does Jesus know who this is? Is he really going to be in the house of a sinner and a tax collector? And then Zacchaeus, out of nowhere, J- Jesus is not pushing Zacchaeus to this moment. Zacchaeus, in Luke 19, verse 8, says this, but Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, says to Jesus, Lord, Lord, here and now, I give half of my possessions to the poor. I have cheated, if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay back four times the amount. How does that happen? Jesus didn't tell Zacchaeus how bad of a person he was. Jesus didn't threaten Zacchaeus. He didn't argue with Zacchaeus. You know what Jesus did? He said, I see you, I love you, I want to be with you. And then he hears the voice of other people saying, is Jesus really doing that with Zacchaeus? And then in Zacchaeus' heart, there is this confrontation that takes place. It's almost like in slow motion, he plays through his mind the life that he had been living. And in that moment, he says, I want to make it all right. I've realized the decisions I've been making. And Jesus' response is, today salvation has come to your house. You've felt it, Zacchaeus. You've seen what could be different. Or we have the prodigal son. We looked at this the other day, right? With the rocking chairs and the father... The son comes to the father and says, look, I want what's mine. You're not dead yet, uh, but I want what's coming to me, and so I want it now. The father gives it to him. He goes off, and he squanders it on wild living. Listen to this, Luke 15, verse 14 says, after he spent everything, everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to be a citizen of that country who sent him to the fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have no food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. So this is a story that Jesus is telling. Jesus gets to tell this story however he wants. And in the story, the father says, son, this is a bad decision, but you can have it. Go ahead and take it and do what you wish. And Jesus says, end the story, end the muck with the pigs. The prodigal son comes to his own senses. And his response is, I got to go back to the father. I've got to go back to, to one who is for me and with me. And loves me. He comes up with a story and says, I'm not worthy. But we see as he returns, the father leaves the porch. He meets his son on the road as he's coming back. He embraces him. He puts a robe on him. He gives him back his identity. But this happens because the son comes to his own senses. And when he comes to his senses, his response is to come back 
to the Father. We see this time and time again. Last one, Acts 8, 26 uh, through 40. Acts 8, 26 through 40. We have this guy named Philip. Uh, and this is his account of what happens with an Ethiopian eunuch. It says this. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, the Holy Spirit speaks to Philip. Go south to the road, the, de- the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way, he met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official in charge of all the treasury of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship. So he is a worshiping Jew. And on the way home, he was sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. And the Spirit told Philip, the Spirit speaks to Philip, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading, Philip asked? So Philip just hears this man reading something. And he just says, hey, do you, do you know what you're reading? And the response is, how can I unless someone explains it to me? So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. The eunuch was reading the passage of Scripture. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter. And as a lamb before the shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak to his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. This is about Jesus. Verse 34 says, the eunuch asked Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. I want you to get this picture. You have a guy who is seeking and searching. He's reading the scripture. He just so happens to read a scripture about Jesus while Philip is along the way. But see, the reason Philip is there is because he heard the whisper of the Holy Spirit who says, go be near him. And he doesn't push him. He answers questions. He asks questions. And he has put himself in a position to be near to this man. It's not long after this. After he hears the good news, verse 36, it says, As they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, Look, here is water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. See, here's what happened. Philip tells the good news of Jesus. Uh, He he tells the Ethiopian eunuch, Look, this is our story uh, we're separated from God because of sin, but there is good news that Jesus has come. This is who this is talking about, and through Jesus we can be reconciled back to God. We can believe that he is good and he has forgiven us, and our response is to be baptized. And his response is, well, there's a little water. C- can I be baptized? C- can I be one who accepts the grace of God? And it happens. It happens in his life. But it was because the Holy Spirit nudged Philip. It's because the Holy Spirit was already speaking to this Ethiopian eunuch, and Philip had positioned himself. See, this is what I want you to hear me say here in the closing. Position matters. Where you position yourself in relationship with people matters. If your story is that you have it all figured out, or that you're okay, That position will not help others experience Jesus. If you put yourself in a position that says, I'm here to help, 
I'm here to listen. I'm here to guide you on your journey as you have questions, just like I'm trying to figure it out on my own. It makes a difference. We see it with Zacchaeus. Jesus positions himself in his house over a meal. We see it with the prodigal son, the father waiting on the porch for his son to come back. We see it with Philip responding to the leading and listening to the Holy Spirit. If you position in your place, in a place of judgment, or again, that you have it figured out, I actually think it will hinder the opportunity for people to be confronted by the grace of God. Listen, Romans 2 forces this. Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his tolerance and patience, not realizing that it's God's kindness that leads you towards repentance? It's the kindness of God that changes people's lives. It's the kindness of God that picks people up and puts us on a different path. It's the kindness of God that causes us to turn around and do a 180 in life. It is the kindness of God that confronts us first and forces us to take a look at our own lives. And it's the kindness of God that will confront other people. So if that's the case, and we do our part, we see that people matter, we help build the reputation, we have conversations pointing to who God is, I think that God will begin to work in people's lives, and we can trust that he will, that we don't have to take on the role of the Holy Spirit. So who is it for you? Uh, Who is it for you that you care deeply about, that you want them to know the grace of God? Could you in this moment just release them to the Holy Spirit? Could you just literally say, God, I'm going to trust in you? I'm going to do my part. I'm going to listen to what you want me to do and to say. But I'm going to trust that in your kindness that you'll confront people. That you'll confront my family member or my neighbor or my friend or coworker, And then I'm going to position him. (coughs) I'm going to position myself in a place where I'll continue to have ongoing conversations. And then be extra kind to them. Go above and beyond with kindness. To show who it is that God really is. Well, the response today is to participate in the Lord's Supper or in communion. Um, that we believe that it's through God's kindness that brings us to the table. Um, if you're new with us, uh, all are welcome to participate in communion this morning. Listen to this. Uh, Paul is writing to a church in Corinth, reminding them of what God had done in the last, uh, really, hours, days of his life. It says this. Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. The purpose of communion this morning is to be thankful for what God has done. It is to be thankful that God offers grace and mercy to all people. That this is a place where we come unified. No matter our backgrounds, our economic status, our race, it doesn't matter. This is a place at the table where God sees us all as created in the image of God. We participate in this as one. And so this morning, you're welcome to participate in this. Uh, You'll come forward. There'll be a station in the the back middle. There'll be a station on both sides. 
Uh, we believe grace is something that we just freely receive. And so this morning, someone will hand you uh, a cracker, bread, and then they will hand you a cup of juice. Uh, you can take that and go back to your seat and wait just a moment, and then we'll take that together. So come forward, receive the, the bread, receive the cup, go back and sit down, and we'll participate in communion together. Will those who are serving come and help me at this time?